This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And thanks for joining us tonight. We've got a great show planned for you. Uh, thank you very much so we've got a great show planned for you tonight uh stay tuned kick those shoes off and relax if you're stuck in traffic i can tell you for certain if you're on the roads you probably are because i was uh it's a grind out there we have armando garcia de la torre he is one of the authors that is going to be at the miami book fair international happening all this week and through this weekend at miami dade's wolfson campus in downtown and we have been speaking with book fair authors for the last two months. It's been a genuine pleasure. And Armando will be one of the last. We will have one more guest from the book fair coming up next week. And if you've got a few minutes, you can always tune in at soundcloud.com slash grantstern or onlyinmiami.co. You'll hear all the podcasts, all the authors. Uh, we had Craig Pittman from the Tampa Bay Times who wrote Oh, Florida. We had uh, Bob Graham's former Senator Bob Graham on the program. We've had a really great run of guests from this year's book fair as we have for the last several years and uh it's definitely worth checking out so uh you go to miamibookfair.org i believe and that's where you can get all the information about the book fair then at 6 30 p.m tonight we have andrew abramson calling into the program he is a columnist he's an opinion columnist for the sun sentinel and he's been writing a lot about the election lately so we're going to discuss that with andrew coming up at 6.30. And then at 6.45, we are going to hear from Lisa Pally. Lisa is part of Pally Promotes, and she is in charge of making sure that you find out about the Miami Book Fair International, and she's going to talk about all of the different amazing authors that you can meet in person at the book fair downtown this week or this weekend. I mean, there's an amazing, amazing cast of speakers. Bernie Sanders will be there. Uh, Maureen Dowd will be there. Uh, 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 Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show, will be there. Of course, Senator Graham, uh, Craig Pittman, Dave Barry will be there. Uh, there's a, a host of amazing, amazing authors. So check it out at MiamiBookFair.org. And this is the part of the program where I get a, a few minutes to speak with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that affect us citywide or sometimes beyond. And I think the topic on everybody's mind in America is still the one topic everybody wishes was off the plate, which is last week's general election. Uh, judging by what's going on on Facebook, um, it, you wouldn't even think the election is really over. Uh, the debates continue. Uh, the national popular vote was won by one candidate. The electoral college vote is projected to have been won by another candidate. And there's still not a lot of common ground between the two. 
And I wish I had some good news for you, Miami residents, but I don't. It's not going to get that much better. And I'll tell you why. In 2000, we had another election that was hotly disputed. And in that particular election, the dispute centered around the vote in Florida. But as a result, as a result, the election was expanded by many, many weeks until finally a winner was declared, then litigation was declared, and then a winner was declared yet again. It was an extraordinary sequence of events. And at the end of it, both sides believed that they had determined rationally who the winner of the election was. And even though the popular vote had gone to the candidate who would not become president, it was settled. And the parties attempted to move on and normalize relations and get on with the business of being America. And for the time, it was the right idea. Um, nobody knew that George W. Bush would make a series of disastrous decisions, use false intelligence to lead this country into a war, and crash the economy by removing all regulation. Nobody knew it, and nobody really could have predicted it. And heck, you know, even in four years, it could have been stopped, at least some of it, some of the worst of it. It could have been stopped. Still, it was a disaster electing George W. Bush as president. But people didn't know it or didn't want to know it at the time. Unfortunately, we're facing a different situation tonight. That is why people are protesting. That is why people are still upset. It's because we have a president-elect who has declared that he is going to go to war with numerous elements of this country one by one. And those kind of declarations are something that we as a citizenry cannot take lightly. We must take every word that he said as a promise that could be fulfilled, if not by him, then by one of his aides, one of his minions, one of his alt-right white nationalist cohorts, one of whom was installed, shockingly, into a top position in the White House over the weekend. It was a change election, or so we are being told by our mainstream media. And for a change, we have a Goldman Sachs alumni with a Harvard MBA in the White House advising the president. Does that sound like change to you? I'd like to point out one last thing, because a phrase that was deployed in the campaign is called drain the swamp. And I saw a wonderful article that pointed out the terrible terrible irony of draining that swamp. Miami and much of Florida is built on swamp land that was drained. And after we drained the Everglades, <clears throat> ever since, we have continued to try and rebuild the Everglades. And once we drained that swamp, we were never able to put it back together because we rely on that swamp for our drinking water it is our natural ecology. So think about that as a new administration takes shape in Washington, D.C. This is not a time to get along and go along. This is a time for us as citizenry to stand up and to oppose every wrongful action that we see, both in word and 
indeed. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Armando Garcia de la Torre. He is the author of Jose Marti and the Global Origins of Cuban Independence. Professor de la Torre, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you very much, Grant, for having me. Thank you for having me, Grant. So, uh, Professor, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and where you teach. I'm a professor of Latin American history and Latin American and Caribbean history at the University of West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I'm originally from Miami, Florida, and um, I've been a little bit around. I got my education in the Northeast and also in, in Boston and also in the Pacific Northwest at Washington State University. And I've been in Trinidad for the last um, almost nine years now. That's cool. So how did you wind up in Trinidad? It's, it's a, it sounds like a very nice locale to be teaching. Yes, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful island. Uh, you know, Karima is very beautiful. And um, one of the reasons I went there was because I was very much interested in living what the, my subject of study. I mean, you know, I'm a Caribbean historian and I thought that um, to, to kind of study the Caribbean removed from the Caribbean in the Pacific Northwest where I was or in the U.S. I mean, Miami is very much a Caribbean city, but I'm saying Definitely. in other parts of the U.S. when you're studying and teaching in other universities, you kind of feel removed from the Caribbean. And I thought that um, an opportunity emerged there and, and, and I took it because I, I wanted to be uh, living in the environment of, 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 of my, you know, of my passion. So. so let's talk about the book, 
because it it is very relevant to what's going on right now. Um, Absolutely. You know, Jose Marti, um, he was basically like the the freedom fighter of Cuba, but he did not live to see uh, a free Cuba. No, he did not. No. Um, So I'll let you pick up the story. He was a nationalist. (laughs) He was a very interesting nationalist because nationalists at that time, okay, Marti lived from 1853 to uh, 1895. He was killed in battle by, he was killed in battle by the Spaniards. Um, he was a very interesting nationalist because nationalism at that time in the late 19th century was very, was emerging in Europe, you know, against, against these, uh, big empires in Europe. And it was very ethnocentric. Okay. So you had nationalists that were emerging, um, as, um, you know, as, uh, as based on one language, one ethnicity, one concept of race. Marti oh, was very tribal. Exactly. Uh, nationalist in a, in a movement. Way. Yes. Oh, but, geez. Uh, yeah. That sounds so remote. Yeah. But Marti's nationalism was very, what I argue in the book is that Marti was unique because it was a hybrid heterogeneous nationalism. And his nationalism. So, so to slow it down for yeah. our audience a little, hybrid. Uh-huh. I mean, heterogeneous. In other words, he was taking disparate groups. Correct. Like they weren't all white Cuban or Afro Cuban. It was one Cuba. Correct. Uh, in fact, he considered part of this national project anyone who loved and served Cuba was a mm-hmm. Cuban. So you did not have to be from a specific ethnicity or from a specific origin. He basically uh, believed that that a Cuban nationalist is someone who loves Cuba and, and serves and fights for Cuba's freedom. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's important to note for our audience because it can fly by like that. You know, I mean, here in America... We're not used to having a nationalist movement that would include everybody. Oh, wait, we have one of those, but we also have another nationalist movement that seems to be getting all the attention. And that's, as you said, more a classic nationalist movement based along the, along the lines of ethnicity and seeking to exclude other racial groups. Correct. And this is even more striking because he was writing in 1880, 1890. Right. So this is the age of like social Darwinism. This is the age of where we see that how much later these ideas become uh, very lethal under, let's say, Nazism in Germany and stuff like that. So he was aware of these of these currents and and fought against these ideas, you know, against this um, uh, what historians call Eurocentrism. So um, his idea was very much. heterogeneous and hybrid and and like i said he believed that that um a nation didn't need to have one specific ethnicity to form that nation and and that is a big distinction between cuba and a lot of the a lot of the ethnicities like a lot of the nationalities for example i think the best example in the caribbean would be hispaniola which is very much divided along the lines of ethnicity to create two nationalities on a single island well, that was a product originally of, of you know, of European empires and then between France and Spain that occupied mm-hmm. that island. And then in the 1790s, when you have the beginning of the Haitian Revolution and you know, revolutionaries fought their freedom, you know, uh, against against uh, French imperialism there. Yeah. So what are the global origins of the Cuban rev- uh, of Cuban independence? Let's keep going with this thought. Okay. I mean, what are these global influences? Okay, well, the reason why I wrote the book is because Marti has been studied from, you know, uh, very closed lenses, okay? Usually have two um, schools of of, of thought when it comes to Marti. One school of thought is a traditional Western 
Christian uh, point of view that Marti has been studied under. And the other one, the most recent one, especially specifically in Cuba, is the Marxist lens, a purely Marxist lens. And, um, and I say, wait a minute, Marti was more than that. Marti was, was, um, was a lot more than that. And Marti was very universal and global in his inspirations and in the way he developed his, his ideas and his program to free Cuba. And this has been lost a lot in the studies of, of, of Marti. For example, in the book, I bring out um, how Marti uh, very innovatively wrote even world histories for children. Okay, he wrote a children's magazine, which people thought he was kind of crazy for, you know, while he's fighting for Cuban independence and being this big political campaigner, he starts writing children's stories. But the children's stories he wrote were um, histories of the world. And these histories of the world highlight non-European people, which is um, very, very striking for that time because, you know, he talks very positively about indigenous cultures of the Americas. He talks very positively about, you know, Africa and African descendants and Asian cultures and India. And so all this, all this during the 1880s is, is, is amazing to me. Because if you look at the histories that were being written in the 1880s, it's all about, you know, how, uh, you know, the grand triumph of Europe and, and European imperialism and colonialism taking over the world. So also other, other global origins that I see in Marti is particularly the Hindu inspirations. Hindu ideas influence Marti a lot. Interesting. Why? Why is that? Well, because, um, again, seeking alternative sources of inspiration. You know, so Marti was... Uh, you know, he was a very—he wasn't very tall. He was a fairly, sh fairly short man. He suffered political prison in Cuba, hard labor at a young age. So he had um, several wounds that he carried throughout his lifetime. He suffered a, somewhat from from his health and because of these wounds and stuff. So, and he had yet this gigantic task of fighting the uh, the Spanish Empire in Cuba. So how he's going to rid, you know, the Spanish Empire from Cuba, and at the same time you know, try to avoid U.S. intervention. And that's one thing that he was very much afraid of was um, U.S. intervening in Cuba's war for independence, which it ultimately which, did. In which it ultimately did yeah. and led to a protectorate that yeah. lasted into the 20s. Correct. So and then a regime and correct. then a revolution, and here we are. Correct. <laughs> so I think that Marti, you know, facing such a, you know, gigantic task of doing that. And, you know, he, he, sought, he, he searched for different sources of inspiration from different ideas of the world. Another chapter that I have in the book also discusses, for example, his relationship with the African diaspora, which is something that has not been very much explored in his work. And, okay, so let's yeah. unravel that for our <laughs> okay. listening audience. Why is there an, an African diaspora of Cubans? Where, where does this come from? Uh, a diaspora means people that are dispersed and yeah, well, like leave okay, their there, homeland and then there are, are dispersed several diasporas. And, and permanently settle outside of that home area. Correct. There, there's several diasporas. But first of all, the one I'm, I'm talking about specifically is the African diaspora, the, Afri the diaspora that came out of Africa as a result of the Atlantic slave trade from okay. the 17th centuries to the 19th. So there were Cubans who were permanently displaced away from the island? Well, I'm talking about... Um, the Africans that went to Cuba and the descendants of those Africans in Cuba and how Marti became an ally to the Pan-African cause in the Americas. Ah, gotcha. Okay, okay that's it's so, important to untangle yeah. that because that's a lot of yeah. 
it's it's a lot of backstory. I think people don't know about Jose Marti. No, and and they, I think people don't appreciate um, the Afro-Cuban experience versus the Cuban experience. That there are two very different traditions that grew up side by side in Cuba. Mm, I would say it's kind of uh, it's kind of like the Cuban dish ajiaco. You know, it's kind of like all mixed in so you know cuba is very diverse very mixed in i don't think yeah. it was so separate in the in the sense of well like, it's not separate know. in that sense but i mean there's religious differences there's religious differences but there's also yeah. religious syncretism that's if right we looked at, there's, for there's example, both Santeria, yeah. right 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 that is a syncretism of roman catholicism with west with, african right. um, spirituality mm -hmm. so um that developed in cuba but what i'm saying is that for example marty's fight to free Cuba from Spanish colonialism was linked to his fight to improve the condition of African Americans and African descendants in the Americas. Which is very telling, by the way, in the wake of history that happened afterwards, because really uh, uh, Castro also adopted that cause in many ways. Well, this is a very at least important thing. I mean, I and think I that, think that this know. is why Castro has been able to achieve uh, his personal objectives. Uh, because he was able to appropriate Marti's ideas. That's right. And Marti's ideas are very universal and they appeal, they're hopeful ideas. They appeal to, you know, justice. They appeal to uh, the, the right thing to do. And I think that, um, you know, uh, Castro was very, I mean, Castro would not have been able to come to power in Cuba if he did not have, if he did not employ Marti's ideas. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, but this is a problem though. It's a problem because what happens is that today many people consider Marti a Marxist and many people consider Marti identified with the Cuban revolution and Marti was not a Marxist. No, no. He, uh, yeah. uh, Marxism was a very different, yeah. it was a different well, school well, of thought. Marti knew about Marxism. And yeah, Marti, it was contemporary. It was Mar contemporary. Yeah, Marti knew about Marxism and knew about socialism, and and he admired certain aspects about socialism, and that, but he didn't believe in the whole violence when it comes to, you know, socialism. And he also he didn't believe in, for example, government control of the economy, something that he fought against Spain. For example, Spain controlled the Cuban economy. Spain Spain dictated who Cuba could trade with or who couldn't, and the type of economic reforms that Cuba would have would be dictated by Madrid. And this is something that Marti was very much against so i think that he might see if he were alive today he would be against a control of the economy that doesn't mean that he would be in favor of gross social injustices and unequal access to different groups to participate actively in an economy okay right so, and, and i think that yeah. that underscores one of the problems that not just cuba but like mm -hmm. much of latin america has mm -hmm. um and it's every government there is has a different level of problem with this although I would say Chile doesn't, which is the the undocumented economy, the the gray market, the black market, where it's you know I mean in Venezuela it's the most extreme. It takes something like five or seven years in Venezuela to register a company. Not there's an, not that there's anything left to do there, but um, Brazil yeah. is not considerably better. You know, yeah. what has to deal with with structural problems, corruption, yeah. um, you know, uh, aspects like that. But going back to Marti, what I was saying is that, you know, some aspect is that, you know, I really, w one of my goals is to make Marti also, you know, um, an ally of the Pan-African cause. And, and what I mean by that is that Marti was fighting against racism in the United States 
in the 1880s. And he wrote actively in newspapers against segregation, against um, you know disenfranch the disenfranchisement of you know of of people of African descent or of other ethnic ethnicities. So um, Marti was really, I would say, humanitarian. And, you know, Cuba has the distinction. I mean, I think Cubans are lucky that they have this great statesman who was who gave his life, you know, for the cause of a free Cuba. So he was a political campaigner and activist, but he was also a poet and he was also a master of the 19th century Spanish language. So um, that is something. So if, if, if Marti is never studied as a political activist or or as a humanitarian and for his anti-colonialism, we could study him as an innovator of Spanish letters and Spanish poetry at that time. So he's a, he's really was an amazing man. It's a complex figure. Yeah, very complex, but yet very humble. I mean, you know, he would sometimes he would be with with this with this. Um, he always wore this black suit, and sometimes you know a friend once told him he's like, why do you have the, a hole in your suit and why don't you mend it? You know, why don't you buy a new one? And he's like, well, if I buy a new one, people are gonna think that I'm corrupt and I'm spending the money of the Cuban cause on my clothes. And he goes, and and if I mend it, it's gonna look tacky. So you know, this <laughs> this way, this way, people know that I'm that I'm actively working. You know, that I have, I'm too busy to be. You know, um, so it's so a lot of little stories like that about my team, but. Yeah, what you're saying, I think that during this time you opened up talking about the election. And I think that Marti um, gives us a message of hope. And Marti, uh, Marti's message is, is ultimately a message of hope because Marti was a dreamer. Okay, he was, he was, he was a dreamer. And he, first of all, uh, I believe his, his most powerful um, teaching that we could have is love. And he was also a teacher. He taught, he set up schools in New York, Tampa, Key West, that taught and gave skills to people from the Caribbean that didn't have access to go to school because, you know, it, it was difficult. To. Well, it's funny because you mentioned that because basically, like, if there's one city that he's had the most impact on, it's probably Miami. If you drive around Miami, you'll see Jose Marti schools. Correct. Correct. I mean, today. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yet. Um, his entire life was lived before the city of Miami was even incorporated. How about that? Yeah, he never came to Miami. Exactly, Miami really didn't exist at that time. But he did visit Tampa, and right. you know, and he would speak to the cigar workers in Tampa Ybor, or Ybor yeah, City. Ybor City, exactly, Ybor City section of you know of of, of metropolitan Tampa, and um, he was a very grassroots uh, person. You know, he believed in 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 you know in going. You know, to the grassroots level for political activism. What I talk about, what I what I wanted to say about love is that you know, for example, he when he said you know to teach is an act of love, and those who do not love cannot teach. And I think that um, going back to to what happened in our election, I think what concerns many people is a lot of the hateful language that was used, and a lot of uh, hate and division and scare tactics that that was brought on by fear, one candidate. Abject fear. 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 And that is something that unfortunately appeals to the base level of people, appeals to people's fear, you know. But Marti also said, you know, we, we can appeal to what people have of base or we could appeal to what people have of spirit, the higher, the higher level of people, uh, our higher good. And I think that um, in that sense, we really need to now as, um, you know, trying to, to put Marti's ideas of that book and trying to link them to today, is basically 
not allowing for injustice to happen and not allowing for freedoms to be rolled back and, um, and not allowing for fear to win and for fear to take place. And for, you know, fear is not gonna win. It's not gonna win here, I think. I think we have to really continue with, with you know, our hope and be hopeful and fight for, fight, fight for the gains that we've, that, we've, that, we've, that we've accomplished and that we've achieved. And I think that that's something that Marti was a fighter to, for that to, 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 you know, to gain justice and, and, um, and, and fair place for, for everyone in a society. Not for society just to be for one group. I mean, society for to, to be really reflective of, of everyone. Well, you know, American society, um, we, we have this motto, e pluribus unum, which means from many, one. Correct. And, yes. and that's, that's precisely what it means, that civil society is meant to be enjoyed by people who are from all places, but, you know, here living as one nation. Correct. And I think that there's a lot of fear from from certain groups of people that fear that that if they engage other groups that they might lose their identity. And the truth is that you could be very strong in your identity and still participate and appreciate other people from other areas and from other other ethnicities. So um, uh, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. And I think Marti was a strong believer in that, too. He believed in in the in you know in this whole sense of of heterogeneity of 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 diversity of how cultures of the how the strongest civilizations the most advanced civilizations on this planet on the history of this planet have been civilizations that have engaged in cultural diffusion and in interculturalism transculturalism multiculturalism and people learn from each other and this is how we get strong we do not learn we do not become better by being isolationist and you know and clinging to our forts and and um and and not engaging other people and not embracing other cultures and other ideas that's very true um you, you used one of those nine dollar words that i love syncretism correct yeah it's the impact of two different cultures or ideas mm -hmm upon one another to create something new and different like jazz music correct 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 and the caribbean is a space like that because the uh, caribbean is really the first globalized space on earth i mean we look we see that in the 16th 15th century uh you have indigenous americans africans africans asians europeans all of them coming together in the caribbean so my is a product of the caribbean we are a product of the caribbean and well, uh, Professor Garcia de la Torre, tell our audience, when will you be at the Miami Book Fair International this weekend? I'll be on Saturday the 19th at 3 p.m. at Miami-Dade Wilson Campus downtown. Alrighty. And is there any website or uh, web link you'd like to give out for audience to follow up with the, if they would like to know more? Sure. Um, Armand at GT, Armand GT on Twitter. Yeah. Alrighty. Thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Thank you very much, Grant. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. 880 The Biz. Time saver traffic. So we got a disabled vehicle blocking your left lane on the northbound Palmetto just before Douglas Road. It is causing a bit of stop and go from Northwest 57th Avenue. Also another disabled vehicle blocking your left lane on 395 westbound at Biscayne Boulevard. You want to stick to the right to get through it. I'm Ace Torres with your South Florida traffic.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Andrew Abramson. He is a columnist for the Sun Sentinel newspaper in Fort Lauderdale. Andrew, thank you so much for calling us on the program tonight. Sure. How you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, you know, it's been a long, uh, almost a week now, six days. You know, you go through all the emotions, uh, shock, uh, you know, fear, <laughs> right? fascination. It's uh, It's been interesting. Yeah, it's certainly been a process I wasn't looking forward to personally. <laughs> How about yourself? Yeah, no, I mean, I obviously, I thought Hillary was going to win, and I supported her. I, you know, I was never, I was never the biggest Hillary fan, so to speak, but I just, you know, Donald Trump as president, I, like so many people, had so many reservations. I didn't think the country would pull the trigger. The majority of them didn't. Good way of but, putting you know, it. That's the system. Yeah, that's the system we have. So uh, he's our president now. Didn't see it coming. And all I can do, and I know this is where me and you differ, I try to say, look, I, I hope, I, I don't think he will, but I hope he does well because, you know, that would be good for our country. But, you know, I do I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I'd be surprised. Well, you see, the way I look at it is that the other party just pulled a eight-year-long obstruction, right? That's one thing. But things have gotten so much better because the first two years, President Obama set the table. So after that, there, you know, the Republicans didn't even have to do anything and, and America got better. So maybe if Democrats obstruct effectively, nothing will happen, period, and things will continue to be okay except on the margins where we will see a lot of minorities um getting hurt so i have a question for you okay what and, and we've talked about this a little bit but what was your thought when you saw the hillary clinton campaign slogan stronger together <laughs> i'm like she's gonna go seven and nine this year <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Was, That's so true. It was always with the Dolphins. It was like the lamest slogan. Uh, you know, they kept doing it year after. They started it after the Richie Incognito, Jonathan Martin bullying scandal, and they kept it like two seasons too long. And How ironic Hillary is that? It. I mean, they I they chose that after a bullying scandal, and Hillary, Hillary chose it to go through a, a bullying election. Yeah, no, that's that's so true, and uh, you know, it just goes to show it, it wasn't the most original campaign. It certainly wasn't the most inspiring campaign. You know, I think she would have been fine as president, uh, but you know, this was this was the year, and, and uh, you know, I I look at the DNC, and I, I wish they had recognized this. And I know she was running, whether they could, you know, whether there was probably no way they could stop her from running, but. I just think that, that they, they needed to recognize that the electorate was looking for more of a grassroots style, you know, almost populism kind of candidate. I mean, Bernie Sanders, you look at him, and I think that's what uh, inspired so many people when it came to him. And Hillary was just not that candidate this year. And that slogan just kind of sums it up, just a bland, you know, previously used slogan. Yeah. Well, I, <clears throat> ironically, <clears throat> the Trumps are doing the same thing to hide their new hotels. They are buying a cratered car brand, the Scion brand. And rebranding their new hotels based on that—that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're they're uh, because there's gonna be a lot of people that don't want to stay in Trump hotels. 
Uh, you know, it's got, there's going to be some people who love it. That's our president. They're going to be excited. Then there's going to be others who just don't want to be associated with that. And yeah, I remember, you know, back in the day, I, you know, oh, Trump hotel. Wow. That's going to be nice. That's going to be fancy. Now I'm like, ew, I don't want to stay in a Trump hotel. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, they did manage to lose actually a major sporting event in South Florida over all of this. Right. Um, what do you think the impact of all of this will be? on the trump brand i mean your take because there's trump branded stuff up there in fort lauderdale there's towers and buildings up there too right yeah i mean you know if he had lost the campaign i thought there was a chance it was going to hurt his brand uh you know i, I imagine him him being the leader of the free world uh i don't think it's gonna hurt his kids are gonna be running the brand obviously it's a different connotation now you you know you used to think of Oh, yeah, businessman, TV star Donald Trump. Now it's, oh, it's the president's family's uh, hotels. It's strange. I mean, we've never, you know, I, I think back, and I, I can't think of, obviously we know he's the first real businessman that's been president. I mean, every other president in the past has at least either been a politician or been in the military. And mm, so that's forth. not true, actually. George W. Bush yeah. was also a real businessman in the same sense that they were both born into very wealthy families and failed upward. Right, I'm saying he's the first one, he's the first president who at least at some point before he was president didn't serve as a politician or uh, in the military. But I was trying to think if there was another president who was associated with a, with a business brand. You're right, the W, I mean, he owned, he owned the uh, Texas Rangers at one point. But, you know, there well, wasn't I mean, really a that's, singular brand he was associated with business-wise. I know, don't know if there's ever been somebody. I, yeah, I mean, you know, he was really qualified for that Texas Rangers job. <laughs> yeah he did uh, didn't he trade sammy sosa young sammy sosa <laughs> yeah like, ah, that guy's not gonna be any good at least he didn't sign a rod <laughs> <laughs> oh man so it's uh it's gonna be it's uh i mean it's different and look the uh the, the journalist in me is intrigued as long as they don't put me in prison but the uh the i think American that says it all though <laughs> really <laughs> oh it's so intriguing as long as i don't get put in prison for discussing it yeah you know, I, I do. I do wonder what is going to happen to the press. I mean, I imagine Trump is going to be up there at press conferences, and he is going to, uh, you know, he's going to bash the media. And if he doesn't like an article that was written about him, he's going to let all of us know. You know, is he still going to be tweeting as president? I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he is. But uh, th this is going to be different. I mean, this brings you back to the Nixon days, where it really was a war on the media, war on the press, and that's a scary thing, because the First Amendment is one of the most important things that we have. And, you know, I wonder, too, obviously, bringing in Steve Bannon, he's got his own news organization. It almost makes me think that they're going to have kind of a state-run media kind of thing going from the alt-right. It's, uh, it's um, let me tell you, uncharted territory. Let me tell you a little-known but factual secret. It's not actually a secret, but it is a fact. Indiana Governor, then Indiana Governor Mike Pence, started a state-run news service. And after much public outcry, it was forced to close down. I have not read that. I'm actually surprised I have not read that. That uh, so what was it? It was it was a was it a, a, a web based uh, yep. outlet? Yep. It was okay. uh, it was a web based outlet, and um, I mean, it, you know, it's just one of these things. Like anytime you see state run PR, uh, um, you know, a state run agency for that. I mean, you just it makes you wonder. You know, normally government just. Uh, makes an announcement everybody covers it but uh in this case i'm just looking it up i mean I, i've read about uh, he's okay 
internal documents obtained by Indy, the Indy Star in 2015 show that they developed plans to start a state-run taxpayer-funded news outlet that would make pre-written news stories available to the Indiana media as well as sometimes break news about his administration. They called it the Pravda on the Plains. Well, it was going well, to be called a- Just In. <laughs> When I covered city of West Palm Beach a few years back, they had kind of gone in that direction. You know, their PR was starting to write, you know, I mean, obviously had their own TV station and they were breaking their own news. And you, you just don't want to see that at a national level. But, you know, I'll say this. I guarantee you the other side would counter and they would say, well, you know, the Democrats already had their own state run media. They had the New York Times and the, the Wall Street, you know, not the Wall Street. But that's Journal, not but the state run. And, that is not state right, run or right. controlled or anything. Right. In fact, it's quite but that, but that's the opposite. What you're going to hear. They're going to counter and say, well, this is going to balance it. But, uh, you know, it's it, it, that this part frightens me. The war on the media that I think is coming. It, it is a huge, huge, uh, frightening scenario. And let's just. Gosh, you know, we could go in two different directions with this. We could talk about state-run media, but I think that we should also, uh, let's see, there's there's the state-run media part. Oh, man, there's so many problems. And you see, that's, I think, where they get you. <laughs> um, oh, there was another issue I wanted to talk about, and it's a media issue. These are great, um, great issues that are not being discussed, unfortunately, enough. Megan Kelly of the Fox News Network, she is becoming the face of the network. I mean, it's her and Bill O'Reilly. They're back-to-back. They're the two primetime stars of the network. And in her latest book, which was released after the election, the New York Times reports that the chairman or an executive of Fox News delivered the seminal question of the 2015 primary debate cycle to Donald Trump in advance. And then she was pressured not to ask that question question wait you mean trump's a hypocrite <laughs> yeah no i i heard that now that was no no was, so was that the question that she ended up asking him about women that is correct okay because for one and then she and then she came back and said that she didn't she kind of denied what she had she kind of said it's being misconstrued what what she had said in the book well I, she did gathered, not hand out wait, the question correct correct wait, wait correct me if i'm wrong did he know a question about women was coming, or did he know a really harsh first question was coming? Because that's what I thought I had read when this first broke. He knew that that pointed question was coming. Specifically about women, that that question was coming. Oh, yeah, and from Megan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, you know, yeah. He, he had advance notice. Didn't he say that if he got, if he got advance notice on questions, that they'd put him in the electric chair? I think he said that a couple weeks ago. I, I think he did say that, actually. <laughs> Um, and you know this I is. I mean, you know, I, no, I won't go there. I was saying earlier today that that uh, false equivalency is the the phrase of 2015. I think you know truthiness was like the the word of the year at one point under the Bush era. You know, the Stephen Colbert coined it, but false equivalency that would be my my phrase of the year this year. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean it's. Uh you know, it's it's been it's just been so. You know, I'm trying to think of so many examples. Give me some more examples. I'm just trying to think of what we could go through. Let's go through like the top five from this year. Um, you know, Hillary's emails versus any of Trump's scandals. There you go. I mean, I think that's 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 a huge one. Even though I do think I will say about Hillary that. 
you know, that was, I mean, as Secretary of State having a private server in her basement, you know, I'm not going to defend that at all. And I think that, I think that you know what? was really, what? Kurt Eichenwald from Newsweek said that if her server had not been in her basement, it probably would have been hacked. That's right. I thought it, yeah, I thought. But then I've heard that, that, you, that if you're actually more susceptible to being hacked by having a home-brewed server in your basement. That's not what I'm saying, though. What I'm saying is there was a hacking incident that happened, and according to Newsweek, if she had had a public, e- you know, if she had had her emails at state, she would have actually had a, a higher chance because it did happen there, but it did not happen from what everybody said to her own personal machine. But over all of that, my point is that there was a false equivalence between Hillary's emails and policy in the United States of America. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I've seen the list. You, you, you know, you put all of Trump's issues, emails, Trump's emails, emails. Yeah, no, no. He, uh, he hammered that. He, he, he did it. You know, look, Trump did a masterful job of hammering home, you know, painting crooked Hillary when he had so many of his own issues and there's so many questions about this guy as president. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he would have beat any other Democrat if it had been Bernie. I mean, it would have been really fast if it had been Bernie. I, I definitely don't think he would have beat Joe Biden. Uh, you know, I agree. That was I, a, I agree with you uh, right there. Bernie, Bernie would have been interesting because Trump would have spent six months painting him as this crazy, wacky communist. But, you know, it was a populist year. And, they, you know, there's some Bernie supporters that voted for Trump, which I think is kind of crazy. But I get it. I get the whole trade thing and the whole populist thing. I, I kind of understand why they did it. That would have been a really interesting election, Bernie versus Trump. The, I think it would have been a much, uh, a much more palatable election to watch, although it would have been ugly to watch Trump, say, lock Bernie up. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, we're going to take a really short break, and we're going to come back after the break, and we're going to discuss where we go moving forward because there's new news coming out, and... Uh, Boy, it's going to be one of those months. You you don't you want to watch the news closely with uh, one eye closed. And we'll be right back. This is the only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back speaking with Andrew Abramson. He is an opinion columnist for the Sun Sentinel up in Fort Lauderdale. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Yeah, having a good time so far. So far, so good. So, just out on the Daily Beast, Trump wants top secret clearance for his children. 
while he is president. <laughs> I saw that. And what I don't know, and I haven't had time to read that or dissect it, is what has, what's been the previous protocol for presidential children? Oh, let has me explain been? that. Only government official employees and contractors can receive security clearance. Okay. So no former, you know, George W. and Jeb, when they were presidential sons, they didn't have the top clearance. They did not have clearance. Even the Bush children did not so have the clearance. Next question. So here's the next question. Does Trump have that right to give it to them? Um, that's that's who's a good gonna question. That, that, well, you know, that's the thing. That's a good question. I, uh, I just don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, between you and me, it's just, it's literally like breaking right now, and I'm I just don't know. Yeah, because those are the two questions that came to my mind. What's the you answered the first one that that hasn't been done in the past, and the second one is can he do it? Can our dear leader just do that to his children and whoever he wants? Well, you know, he can put them onto the transition team, and that alone sure. is just causing a huge conflict of interest. And, um, I mean, it's, it's a virtual merger between the Trump family and the government. Right. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. We're going to have, we talk about state run media. How about the state run Trump hotels? (laughs) Well, there is one. It's at the old post office building. They're going to be able to pick their own landlord. How about that? (laughs) It's, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, I just, there's just so many questions right now about, we've, you know, like I said, we've never had a businessman, a current businessman as president, uh, you know, the business ties, his ties to Russia. I mean, is Russia going to be our allies? Now, let me say one thing about Russia real quick. I know everyone's talking about him and Putin, best buddies. You know, that's going to blow up at some point, right? And they're just going to well, be total, they're just going to, I mean, that's gonna, either way. It's a scary thought. I don't think there's a win <laughs> or a, a win or a win in that situation. Um, lose, lose there. <laughs> yeah, and let me just tell you, um, and the whole listening audience, I would love for you guys to Google my name, Grant Stern, and Huffington Post. I've actually written several exclusive stories about Trump's Russian ties. And Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. All right, thanks for having me. Uh, can you give out your Twitter account so everybody can continue the conversation online if they'd like to? Yeah, Abramson FL. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, you check out my stuff, sunsentinel.com. And, uh, yeah, it's been a good time. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Any, anytime. And we've got Lisa Pally from Pally Promotes live with us on the phone. She has been working yes. diligently to make an amazing Miami Book Fair International for you this year. Lisa, thank you so much for joining yes. us on the program tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, and hopefully you can hear me because I'm here on site at Miami-Dade College, Wilson Campus. Um, Sounds great. Carvel just just finished. So here we are. Wow. So we're getting ready for Alan coming at 8 o'clock. So tell our audience about some of the highlights to expect, um, whether it comes to family or authors that you might want to see this weekend at the Miami Book Fair International at Miami-Dade Wolfson Campus downtown. Okay. Well, actually, we are up all week. So tonight um, with Carville, and we're going to have Alan Cumming, the actor, coming up next. And then we have Maureen Dowd and... Um, Jeffrey Tubin, so that's all this week. And then on Friday, it's a big, it's our, it's the first day of the street fair, so it's all open, it's all free, so come on down. And then Saturday and Sunday, from dawn to dusk, basically, um, 600 authors will be reading, we'll be taking over downtown Miami. Literature, literature descends on downtown Miami. Um, so we have a little bit of everything. We have 
fiction and nonfiction and people coming from all over the world. We have a, a big program for YA and kids. Yes, parents, do not leave your kids at home. Bring them to the fair. There's lots and lots of stuff over at Children's Alley. There's a whole um, YA component. Some of the rock stars in that world are coming to the fair. So um, there's a lot of like public events at the fairs. The Swamp there this year? Yeah, so how it works is that you pay one flat fee. Um, it's $8 for adults and um, $5 for teens and free for kids. And for seniors, it's also $5. So once you pay, everything inside the fair is free. So you can go to the you can go to the porch, you can go to the kitchen stadium where we have cooking demos. You can see any and all of the readings. Um, Children's Alley is also part of the fair. So what you just pay once and the 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 place is yours. And I always I always suggest people to check out the website MiamiBookFair.com or pick up a book so you can you can schedule yourself out so you know what you want to do and when you want to do it and to schedule your time, to leave time to walk the streets for the vendors, to see the authors that you want to see. You also have to leave time to run into your friends because you will. It's a, a big happening downtown. Also, I want everyone to know is that we have free parking. Oh, where's so the free parking? Hold on. Free parking alert, everybody. Free parking for the book fair. Where is it? Free parking. So um, it's over It's at Building 7, and it's a huge parking garage. It's a block long. We've never filled it, people. We've never filled it. That's how many spaces there are. Is is it the one and on Northeast Second uh, Avenue, uh, just north of exactly. the? Exactly. Uh-huh. It's uh, between Northeast First and Second Avenue, between um, Northeast Fifth and Sixth Street. So it's also it's very close to the Triple A. It's right off. If you're coming downtown to the book fair and you want the free parking, and I yes. free as in beer, uh, you yes. take. Interstate uh, 395, exit onto Northeast 2nd Avenue and turn right. You go down about six blocks, and it's on the right-hand side. It's Building 7. Right, you make a ride on Northeast 6th Street, because Northeast 6th Street is one way going west. Okay, right on Northeast 6th Street, so it's five blocks. Exactly. Turn right. Exactly, and then um, it's the first left you can make into the garage. And what hours is the book fair running this year? Um, We are basically... 10 to 6. I mean, the first reading start at 10. Um, the gates open at 9. So, and we have programming all day. And if you do come early, you can walk the streets without being jostled. And you can see all the vendors. And we have all different kinds of vendors. But everything that's related to literacy and literature um, will be there. Well, yeah. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. MiamiBookFair.com. Right. Go to the Miami Book Fair, uh, to MiamiBookFair.com. Yeah. And that's yeah. all the time we have for tonight's program. I want to thank everybody who's been on the show. Professor De La Torre. I want to thank Andrew Abramson for calling in. I'd like to thank Lisa Pally. And we'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show. And when the vibe I lick you on the bass, I kick you on dance to the sunshine. You feel the vibe, you know.